Perhaps the great irony of Australia's superannuation system is that while it's created a $2 trillion pool of money that's the envy of the world, along with a huge industry to service it, it was a Labor Party invention, starting with Whitlam and culminating with Keating. And now a new book by former Labor MP Mary Eason called Keating's and Kelty's Super Legacy maps the birth of our super system, and in particular the roles of all the characters who played a part, including their arguments and their deals. It's a fascinating story, as much a focus of politics and business today as it was 25 years ago when it was passed into legislation. I started by asking the author Mary Eason about the origins of the idea in the early 70s and the reviews and studies into superannuation that were going on at the time. Well, yes and no. It's funny. The Hancock Committee was one of these, um, like, it didn't come back with its findings until after Whitlam was out of government. So the Fraser government got it and it had a majority and a minority report. The majority report was the idea that government itself would pay for the system. So it was the old fashioned idea. The minority report, however, it came up with something that is more akin to what we have today. But nevertheless, the Fraser government just sat on the report, did nothing with it, and so nothing happened. And then you sort of go through another decade until 83, until uh, the Hawke government uh, comes in. And of course, the accord has been discussed, and there are things that have been that have been happening inside the union movement that have been pushing for coverage of superannuation as an industrial issue. And so even though it's not put as one of the conditions of the accord, it is referred to as a general goal inside that first accord back in 83. Why didn't it get up as a part of the first accord in 83? What actually happened was it was sort of something that was debated at the last moment and people felt very strongly about it. So there was agreement that they would then put the words in that this was a general goal, but they hadn't worked out at that stage how they were going to achieve it or what they were going to do with it. So that's why it was put in. There were certain people, people like uh, Charlie Fitzgibbon and others who had convinced Kelty of the importance of this and wanting to do it and sort of saying, look, let's put it in. And so certainly um, uh, Simon Crean talks about the importance of of putting it in there, uh, but it's just not one of the essential demands that were originally drafted up. It just got included at the last moment. Simply because they hadn't worked out what the system was going to be at that stage, yeah. But it was a goal. Yes, right. So it took another nine years for the superannuation guarantee levy to be passed into legislation and seven accords. In terms of 92, you're quite right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give us a sense of what happened during those those nine years and throughout each of those accords that culminated in the accord Mark 7, which was the last one before the superannuation guarantee levy came through. That's right. Well, I mean, during the period of time, you had uh, from 83, the conciliation arbitration, there was that national wage case where there was 3% given in terms of workers. And at that stage, Kelty sort of begs Keating to do the right thing by the workers and to sort of say that money should be put in what the workers want instead of them getting the 3% is they wanted to go into superannuation. Now, there are some great stories here where you sort of have Kelty, you know, saying this obviously to Keating and Keating agreeing that, okay, the money can go into superannuation. And then you have Kelty going back to the ACTU executive and sort of saying, oh, look, I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is they're going to give us the 3%. Bad news is they're putting it into super. Well, half of the unions are thrilled about this, but the other half are not thrilled about this. And that sort of split was not because of a philosophical thing, but well, I guess it was in a way. There was a view that inflation 
was very high at this point of time and there was a view that really the workers really needed the cash in hand rather than foregoing it for a later period of time when they would get it as part of their retirement benefit. So it was that sort of philosophical thing amongst the unions. These days, most unions will be very proud about the fact that they consider the creation of superannuation as part of their legacy. And that is true. Many of them fought for it very strongly, but a lot of them had reservations about how it would come in and when it would come in. To what extent was it an argument about cash now versus cash later or an ideological conflict within the unions? Certainly the cash argument was there with a lot of the right-wing unions. Certainly unions like the SDA and and others, they felt that their workers perhaps would be better off. And I, I think probably it was often unions that covered a lot of female workers where they might be working sort of part-time or working you know, to, to add to the family income. There was a view that maybe this was sort of not – it wouldn't be significant enough for them uh, in terms of withholding that money from them. And so even I think Hawke himself – wasn't sure, you know, even coming from the unions, he wasn't sure whether, the, in fact, the workers themselves really wouldn't prefer the money cash in hand at the time. And so this debate went on over that period and through all of those accords to get to a stronger position as it finally got to when it came in. But during that time, it was sort of um, other things started to happen. So once they, they started this, uh, the idea of the national wage case and the 3%, Unions then set up policies overnight. They set up superannuation funds, and that's why you've got a whole lot of them. And during that sort of 10-year period, some of the unions, like the building ones, there were great campaigns that were run with enablers like Gary Weaven in the building industry, where they got an extra 3% on top. So some of them were out there getting their demands, if you like. But most of these people saw it as something for workers for their latter life. It wasn't seen as a big policy issue. It was just seen as something for their particular members. You relate how the Australian Industrial Relations Commission, in the negotiations over Accord Mark 7, which was, um, I think, in the early 90s, uh, refused to increase the contributions to superannuation. Was that decisive in persuading Keating to go ahead with the superannuation guarantee legislation? Look, don't forget what really I think brought that to a head was, uh, you might recall this at this stage, you know, Hawke had been in leadership for 10 years. You had Kiravilli agreements that hadn't come to pass in terms of change of leadership. So it was Keating when he went to the backbench that then made the speech at the AGSM, uh, the Australian Graduate School of Management, where he said, and he said this from the backbench, you know, if I was the Treasurer today, if I was the Prime Minister today, this is what I would do. I would bring in a superannuation guarantee levy. And so it was that, and he sort of said in that because the unions were hoping, oh, he might even go up to 6%. But instead he said, look, this is something that will by 2020 be 12%, and I foreshadow in time to come that they will even argue for it to go up to 15%. So that was what Keating said in 1991. Now, uh, as a result of that uh, and the campaign that then sort of swirled around it, that helped also bring the leadership issue to a head again. Because don't forget, Keating had already challenged. He'd lost. He'd gone to the backbench. Then he made the speech and everything then galvanised around him as a result of that. So it also... Leadership was part of a factor in this as well. It, It wasn't the only reason, but it was a consequence of this. And when he eventually brought it on, how important was Cheryl Kernow in uh, in getting the legislation through? Well, Cheryl was definitely important. Um, this is uh, because we didn't, uh, the Labor Party didn't have control of the Senate, and certainly the negotiations uh, between. Um, 
Nick Sherry and uh, and Cheryl Kuno were legendary. Yes, and I've spoken to Cheryl about this. She always formed the view that that it should eventually be 14%. And I said, oh, where did you get that figure from? And she said, well, in the end, by the time that they came to look at it, she said, Treasury then started to say to us that that's what would be needed as something that would eventually be able to be a proper a proper sort of income for one's retirement. So it's a very interesting debate that took place, uh, you know, sort of during that time. Because this was, of course, many years before she decided to uh, cross the Berlin Wall, <laughs> so to speak, in terms of uh, coming over so uh, to the Labor Party. So, But this was something she was convinced of because of the argument. But the interesting part about this, Ellen, is that this policy didn't come out of things like you would normally expect. It didn't come out of a Labor Party conference. It didn't come out of a productivity commission. It didn't come out of Treasury. It was something that did come out of the union movement initially. But by this period of time, Keating realised that you still only had, even with big super justice campaigns and things like this, you still only had half the population covered by any superannuation. So his idea was then to say, look, this has got to be something that covers all Australians. And that was the difference. That was the big policy, the big picture sort of stuff that Keating was known for, and that's what he brought in. I just wonder whether during all of this period leading up to that, there was any discussion about self-managed superannuation and whether the key players like Keating and Kelty and so on were thinking about that at all. I was in the parliament in 93, and I remember going and speaking on things at that stage to do with members' choice. And that was sort of a a big issue there as to, at that period of time, how you would allow people to have the choice, that they shouldn't be forced into any particular uh, funds, uh, and that even though this movement had come out of the unions, but what they had done when they formed their sort of particular, if you like, the industry funds of today, they did so with employers. It has employers' DNA in it, this idea that they're just union funds is not correct. I mean, they were set up with whoever the employer representatives were at that time. They weren't necessarily peak bodies. They were often from the specific industry that was applicable to that particular award or whatever it was. But they sort of cover, and if you look at them today, I mean, they only still cover about 21%. The vast majority of people, 34%, are in managed retirement systems. So, I mean, it's sort of, it's an interesting thing. I think the The government of today has a slightly different view about all this, but I think when you look at it, it's been important that you give people choice. You have at this stage, I think it's about 3% are in what they call corporate uh, super funds. As I said, the superannuation industry funds are about 21%. The public uh, sector is 16% and retail are about 26%. So there's a fair variety there in terms of people to choose from. And so the idea of having the self-managed ones, I think there was a view of, you know, would people uh, not lose their money if they put it into a system like this? Would they have the expertise to run their own and therefore not lose their savings? There were always those sorts of views. But I think, on the other hand, the idea of choice was a very important one and certainly one I think that makes our system um, especially unique and especially good. One of the best things about your book, Mary, is not only do you list the people you interviewed and the days on which you interviewed them, yes. but you also you also provide us with the questions yes. you asked them, which is, uh, which is remarkable. And question number 13 was an excellent question, which was, what were the unintended consequences? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> so having done all this work, you know, and looked at it and so on, what do you think were the unintended consequences and perhaps the flaws in the system? Well, let me think. I think firstly, I think it's fair to say that none of them 
really understood how big it was going to become, except perhaps at a later period of time, Keating and Kelty did understand. I can remember Nick Sherry saying to me that he had been involved with, uh, I think it was the, what was the old liquor trades union, so I think it might have been host, might have been the, the name of the thing, and saying that when they realised they had 10 million in saving, they thought, wow, this could become something big, <laughs> but not realising it would ever get to the $2.2 trillion in terms of savings. I think it was the unintended consequences, perhaps, on those sorts of things. Certainly, the unions, it was one of these things that was happening very quickly. It could have easily not come to pass. It happened because people like Keating saw a moment, an opportunity. Kelty was there too. I, I make the point in the book that Kelty was influenced very much by university professor Donald Whitehead, and Whitehead had written a book called Stagflation, and a lot of the ideas in Stagflation replicated themselves in the accord. So there was Kelty, as a university student, had done thinking about this sort of issue. So it was sort of, they were the remarkable things about it. Perhaps I could interrupt here. I was actually on stage at a conference a couple of months ago with Keating, yes. and I was interviewing him, right, and yes. we got onto the subject of superannuation, and I challenged him by saying obviously they did a good job in setting up the system that forced money into superannuation or at least you know provided for the money to go in but he didn't in my view set up anything to help on the way out and that in fact he allowed people to be thrown to the wolves as I put it to him and uh, he got a bit upset at that but it just it just seemed to me that one of the problems with the system which in a way was identified early on by Keating where you relate how he wanted to discourage lump sums through taxation. But in fact, what happened was people still are able to take out their lump sums. But was that a slip up in the end or was it a deliberate strategy? I remember querying, uh, like Gary Whedon said to me on this, look, I still say that this money is money that was, um, is, part, is what has been earned by the worker. And even though there is a goal for that money to be used in their latter years, how they care to choose it, to use it, is their business. So he said, I don't mind if they decide to go on the cruise or pay off something on their house or do whatever, and then decide to go back onto an aged care pension. Because he said, that's them and their right to choose to use their money as they wish to. I think they wrestled with these sorts of ideas, but it wasn't in any easy way without denying people their individual freedom if you take this away. And and there is a debate, I, I mean, and I think uh, uh, this has been had before about whether or not this, the aim of this was to stop an aged care pension. And it never was. That was always to be there. But yes, keeping it at a minimum, and certainly compared to other countries, ours is about less than 3% or so, whereas other countries have their age pensions at about 10% in terms of the cost of their you know, GDP. So I think it's still an issue. I don't know that it wasn't that they didn't think of it. I think it was they didn't know how to do it any other way that was acceptable at that time. One of my bugbears is the fact that depending on which industry a worker happens to be in, they get defaulted into the industry fund that's connected to that industry. But the trouble is that all these industry funds are all p perfectly okay, but they all have different uh, rates of return on their performance. It's basically a lottery as to which one you end up with. And I, and I suppose, you know, in my view, that's a bit of a flaw, but perhaps uh, you don't agree with me. I think firstly, that the number of superannuation funds that you have, I think these need to be reduced. I think there are a number of issues that are being 
talked about in the industry at the moment. Default is one of them. Usually, though, the people, quite often up until the recent budget where the banks perhaps are not as cosy with the government as they perhaps were, they have strongly been arguing that there shouldn't be a default position. But the argument, of course, is anybody can choose where their money goes. So it's a question of marketing to, you know, the 20-year-old or whoever it is. I mean, you would know, Ellen, as I always say with this issue, as soon as I talk to anyone under 45 and they say I've written a book about superannuation, their eyes glaze over. Or if they're over 45, they want to know where do they invest. And I have to say, no, no, it's not that sort of book. It's one of these issues that a person can choose. They can say, look, I'll put it in Australian super, I'll put it in whatever particular system they want to. And that one just happens to be getting the best rate of return. So, I mean, you can choose on this. It's, It's a question of, I think people advertising and getting young people realising that this is something important. But you can understand young people getting confused when you look at the recent debate that happened uh, around the budget, where the argument beforehand was, oh, because you have a problem with regards to housing affordability, should you be able to take money out of your superannuation fund? Now, most of the experts just jumped on this from a height, and so instead what the government put in was a a completely different system, which was one sort of saying, because we know that super works with basic compound interest. And so if you're taking several years of your uh, savings out of the equation, you're simply not going to have that sort of money at the end. But what they've come up with now is a different sort of solution, which to be perfectly honest, I don't know will do anything really to help the housing affordability problem, but it certainly will help some say, professional people who are fairly well-placed because to be able to afford, you know, the $60,000 as a couple, uh, to be able to put that sort of money away, you're going to have to be on a pretty good income to be able to do it. So that's one of the issues with regards to the recent budget. I do think the government of the day does have a philosophical problem with regards to superannuation. And I think the industry itself is concerned that maybe what's going to happen is that this is the thin edge of the wedge, that if they got the opportunity that they would perhaps do other things. I think uh, there is an issue with regards to insurance, as it is, you know, uh, the industry super funds get group arrangements for life and death uh, insurance and personal disability. Uh, and there is an argument that people have too many funds. So in other words, you, you go to one job, uh, you have a superannuation, you go to another. And if they don't care to roll it over to the next super fund, you're finding that that insurance is being paid maybe a multiple of times. Now, certainly that has come down of recent times. They have been looking at this, and I think they've gone down now from about 35 to about 2.5% is the average now of the number of accounts that people have. Those sort of things need to be rationalised, clearly. Jeremy Cooper, when he did his report, sort of said, really, the cost of running these things, the arrangement should be no more than 1%, and that's what they're trying to get down to. But I think with regards to the success of the system, I mean, you just have to look internationally. And, you know, Mercer uh, Global Pension Index points out that, like, in looking at all of the pensions of the world, they say, well, look, you know, Denmark and the Netherlands are the A-class ones. Australia is B-plus. Everything else in the world is down less than that. So, I mean, our funds on an international standard are really you know, well regarded. I think there is a bit of a thing, there's always this constant tinkering. And one thing you find in sort of talking to people is that they really hate the fact that we keep changing the rules. And I think that's the sort of issue that needs to be looked at because every time government goes to whenever they've got a problem with their budget and they start looking at superannuation as though it's something they can get some more money out of. And I think that's a very dangerous precedent. I think we came into this late, I mean, compared to other European countries that 
Uh, you know, people like Greece and Italy, Spain, where they've got these problems largely as a result of the fact that you could retire at 58 years of age on 80% of your pension and the government had to pay for it. Our system is that it's connected in terms of part of your employment. Uh, yes, you do go the up and down depending on what happens with the market out there. So it's not as though we're totally protected. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, if the market goes down, we might have to keep working for another five or 10 years or whatever it happens to be. But still as a system, it's an awfully good system. We don't have a lot of the baggage that a lot of the other systems do. I mean, people around the world look at Australia and say, gee, can we base ours on theirs? And they find it very difficult to unwind what they've got. Uh, so even though we may have some problems with ours, I think we shouldn't ignore the fact that it is actually a pretty exceptional system. And I think what you've done in your book is um, is clearly lay out how difficult it was to set up. It wasn't an easy system to set up and you've done a great job in uh, putting that down. So I appreciate you spending some time with us this morning, Mary. Thanks very much. No problems at all, Alan. Thanks so much. I've been talking to Mary Eason, author of Keating's and Kelty's Super Legacy.